The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. I am Pastor Bill, and it's my pleasure to be able to be up here and sharing God's Word with you this morning. Today we are back in 1 Peter, and we're going to be looking at chapter 3 and verses 8 through 12. As always, I encourage you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you whether you, you brought a Bible or, or on a device. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to just take one of those as our, our gift to you. I want to thank all of you who were so eager to help Pastor Brian, excuse me, the pastor of preaching, Pastor Brian, get all those gift cards this week. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, consider yourself blessed. Well, before we take a look at God's word, let's open in prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning. We praise you. We praise you for your goodness. We praise you for your grace. We ask that you would bless the words that that I'm about to share and give those listening ears to hear. Let us approach your word with humility and a desire to grow in our relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, again, our our section of scripture that we're going to be covering this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 through 12. And if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? First Peter 3, 8 through 12, God's word says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, what Peter has been doing since chapter 2 and verse 13 is to give special words of guidance and teaching and encouragement to, to various groups of Christians within the church. So we saw in two thirteen through 17, he addressed Christians as, as citizens and told us how to relate to those who are in authority. In 18 through 25 of chapter 2, he spoke to servants and, and told them, how to relate to their masters. And in 3.7, he spoke to husbands, excuse me, in 3.1 through 6, he spoke to wives, the wives of unbelievers, and showed them a way toward winning their husbands. And then in verse 7 of chapter 3, he spoke to husbands about living wisely and considerately with their wives. Now in today's text, 
In 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, Peter speaks to us as members of the church. So this is not the start of a new section, but he's wrapping up what he's been talking about. Peter's going to be spending the, the remainder of this letter reminding us that we can faithfully endure unjust suffering because we stand on an unshakable foundation. I want to point out, though, that this section this morning, it really started further back in the letter, further back than 2.13. And this is important, I think, for our understanding of this passage. Peter has moved from general duties to specific obligations and back to general duties. We remember what it says in 1 Peter 1.16. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As we saw previously in this letter, because Jesus ransomed us from a vain life and because we tasted his goodness, we put away specific sins such as malice and deceit. Because of God's redemptive work, we are his chosen people, a holy nation that abstains from the passions of the flesh and maintains good conduct. Holiness also manifests itself in life's several social structures, which is what we discussed over the last few messages. We talked about that every believer submits to governing authorities, whether it's local or global. Servants submit to the masters, whether they merit respect or not, for Jesus submitted in the same way. And then finally, husbands and wives live together in grace and mutual honor. Then we get to what is in our text this morning, verse 8. It starts this way, finally, finally, or as it says in one translation, now to sum it up. So based on everything that Peter has been saying, Submit to various authorities, government, work, and the home. Now, to sum it all up, all of you, not just special groups, but all of you, speaking to believers. So all of you, all of you who are members of Christ's church, he's telling us what we should do, what we should look like. Now, remember that this is in light of what we have already read. This is summing it all up. This is not just a a to-do list. It's more of a a to-be list. You want to know how to do that previous part? How to submit to government leaders? Submit to an unjust boss? Submit to your husband how to treat your wife? How to point people to Christ in your submission and and in your conduct? The things Peter lists that we're going to be looking at, these are not optional extras. Those are not for those looking for extra credit. They are essentials of Christian living. Peter is not saying, now, you know, it'd sure be great if you could also do these things. They are not just what we should do, but how we should be. How we should be known. Because of what God has done in us, this is how we should be. So when Peter says, we are God's people... We are the chosen ones. And so now we live in this way. We fulfill these obligations. You see, the real question for these readers then and for us today was and is, how are we going to make a right impression in a hostile world? How can we live in such a way in this environment? 
How can we live in a way that would commend the gospel? And notice what Peter does not say. Peter does not say, well, just go out and make a nuisance of yourselves. Go out and aggravate your community. Go out and take the warfare and the weapons of your society and just do what they do. No. No, in fact, Peter says do the reverse of that. He says live in such a way that the world will say, I don't know why these people do what they do. I don't know why they act the way that they act. How can such a different group of people love one another the way that they do? We are exiles. We do not look like the world. We are to live in an unexplainable fashion. Remember chapter 2 and verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now we come to these essentials that we see in our text this morning. We see that Peter is referring to a quality of life, but not just any quality of life. A quality of life which is God-produced. That's key. It's God-produced. We can only do this because of the work that God has already done in us. This is not for you to to muster up the strength to do it. Consider Philippians 2, 12 through 13, where it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you. In other words... As we're going through our time this morning, if ever you find yourself thinking that Peter is calling us as his readers to some self-righteous legalistic activity whereby we attempt to score points for heaven, we are absolutely wrong, okay? This list are not things that earn heaven. These are not things that you are supposed to do, and if you do this, then everything will be okay. No, what the, what the Word of God is saying is that you are chosen. You are called. You are empowered by the Spirit. You have been born anew to a living hope. You are purifying yourselves by obedience to the truth. You are walking in light. Now, says Peter, because all of that is true... Here are the essential characteristics which will flow from lives like that. That is vitally important. It is vitally important that you see it as because of what God has done in you, this is what should be true of you. It's important that we understand this. Otherwise, what I now share with myself and with you, it's really just a chronicle of despair. Because by nature, we cannot do what Peter is asking us to do. That's why these qualities will point your own hearts and others to God. Because only because of God can all of these be true in us. Now we're going to cover these in more detail, but know what Peter says in verse 8. He tells us to regard one another with brotherly love, tenderness, sympathy, humility, with unity of mind. 
The focus here is on behavior within Christian community. Although the character traits of sympathy and humility would also apply to our dealings with non-believers, and we'll get to that in verse 9. But this is within the church. How are we to act towards one another? All right, let's, let's look at this a little closer. Let's read verse 8 again. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. First one on our list is unity. Have unity of mind. Be harmonious. Be like-minded. Be of one mind. Depending on your translation, it will say something like that. This comes from true Greek words, meaning to think the same or to be like-minded. The idea is to maintain inward unity of heart. All Christians are to be examples of peace and unity, not disruption and disharmony. He says, be harmonious. Having a common mindset. Not necessarily all the same tastes or gifts or habits, but the same thoughts and assessments of the essentials of life. God, salvation, virtue. And Peter is not saying anything new here. Jesus in his high priestly prayer said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That they may all be one. Or we can think of Paul in Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So that we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Live in harmony with one another. We as believers do not create unity, but we are to preserve or maintain the unity already established. Sometimes I think that we struggle with a wrong definition or understanding of unity. We confuse unity with uniformity. Unity does not mean that we are all the same. It does not mean that we all think, act, or hold the same opinions. It means that we have unity in purpose. We have unity in focus. We are unified in our goal or objective. We are unified because of God and we are all his children. We all have different gifts and we are unified as one body. I think many of us, if not all of us, can at least appreciate to some level a good musical performance like an orchestra. When I was in the seventh grade, I played the trumpet. Not to brag or anything, but it is true. There were five of us who played the trumpet, and maybe as a bit of a humble brag, I was the fourth best out of five. (laughs) That John guy next to me, he just didn't really apply himself. What can make that kind of music beautiful It's not everyone playing a different song all at the same time. No, that would be a horrible noise. It's not even everyone playing the same song all the way through at the same time. It's each person playing their instrument at the right time. Different ones coming in and going out. 
But even when you're not playing, you are still engaged. You are still following along. So when it's your time, you're ready. A beautiful orchestra has a certain like-mindedness. There is a common purpose and goal. They all know their part and they focus on doing their part well. They understand that each person doing their part well, that collectively, they can do something amazing. I can remember one of those seventh grade performances in the gym over at Scenic Junior High, as we called it then. And the gym at Scenic, it's, it's basically the equivalent of Carnegie Hall to a seventh grader. So in other words, it was kind of a big deal. One of the percussionists, his, his job was to clang the cymbals one time, just right at the end of the song. And in practice, he could never get it right. Just the timing was off. And the night of the performance, I think he was the most nervous out of anyone. And he had one job, literally one job, at least in that song. He could just wait it out. And all he had to do was just follow along. And at the right time, at the very end, just clang the cymbals. Now me, being the fourth best trumpet player out of five, which means I was basically an expert. So even as I was following along with my parts, I, I had an eye on his part too. And as it got closer, I could see him out of the corner of my eye. And he was getting ready. As the song would build to that final moment, just at the exact moment, he, he clanged the cymbals, and it was perfect. Now, I won't mention the part about him being so excited that then he set the cymbals down and they fell on the floor to make a loud crashing noise. I'll, I'll leave that part out for now. That's not important. But it was beautiful. It wasn't perfect by any means. But so often in a performance like that, even if someone isn't playing perfectly, they can be absorbed in the rest of the group. As long as there is that shared purpose and that shared goal, we can carry others along that aren't at their best. Have unity of mind, unity of purpose. Be like-minded in what is important in the gospel. There can be secondary things that we disagree on, but we agree that they are secondary. Jessica and I don't always agree on things, and you can pray for her about that. <laughs> we don't always have the same opinion, but there is a unity in our marriage. We can make those areas of difference become areas of disunity. So we have to keep the goal or the purpose in mind. So again, unity does not mean that people are to set aside their own perceptions and viewpoints and just blindly embrace everything that everyone else in the congregation believes. That's what you would expect to find in a cult, not in church. We all come from different backgrounds, and we bring to the church different perspectives. Discarding those differences is not required for unity. Peter's plea here is that believers have agreement on substantive matters. We are to share one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The next one is, is sympathy or, or be sympathetic. That is feeling what others feel so that you can respond with sensitivity to the need. The idea here is not so much you know, feeling sorry for somebody. 
The etymology of these words is more specific. The comparison is to share common feelings. I feel your pain has become a trite expression in our day. However, the ability to feel another's pain and joy is an aspect of what we are called to do. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Sympathy often looks more like listening than telling or giving advice. You don't have to say, I know how you feel, but you come alongside in an understanding way. And listen, sympathy is hard if you don't really care. So if you're not feeling all that sympathetic towards a particular person within the church, maybe you need to work on caring about that person a little more. True sympathy is fairly quiet, time-intensive, presence-intensive way of being. And I want to be careful here. We might be tempted to swap out sympathy with empathy. Empathy implies, I know what you're feeling and I can feel the same thing which might be true, and that might be helpful. But it is not required in order to have sympathy. We may not understand the pain. We may not know what it's like to go through that particular struggle. But we can still care that our brother or sister is going through this. And because we care about them, we care about the situation. Even if you can't put yourself in their shoes. Then Peter says we are to have brotherly love. We are to love as brothers, as family. This is more than just a general love that we can have even for people we don't know. But as believers, we have a love for one another that is like family. The family is the chief metaphor in the Bible for the church. God is our father and we are his adopted children. If Christ loves you, and you are in Christ, and Christ loves me, and I am in Christ, then what could possibly be more natural than to have at the bottom of this pyramid a connection of love between us? We should love one another, if for no other reason than we share the same Father. Brotherly love means we don't view each other as strangers, or as mere acquaintances, or as distant relatives but we view each other as close family. Family can have pretty serious squabbles and exchange some very harsh words, but only the rarest of cases does the family break up over it. This call to to love means that we need to put forth effort to to really know one another. This is part of why we've always encouraged you to greet each other, especially those you don't know well. We are to love each other and care for one another. How much harder is that if we don't take the time to get to know each other? So on a a meal Sunday, don't just hang out with the people you already know, the people that you are already comfortable with, but get to know the rest of your family, especially those you don't know well. Don't just sneak out of church as soon as it's over, but stay and talk. Take advantage of opportunities to serve, like with the meals ministry, to bring a meal to a family member. And it just gives a a brief opportunity to know just a little bit more about them. Next, 
All of you be kind-hearted or tender-hearted. This is not a word about conduct, but about your insides. Literally, your, your innards, your belly. The literal translation of the Greek here means feel generous in your belly. Deep down in your gut. God is commanding us to feel. We are to be tender-hearted. Other translations may use a different word here, but the thought is that in the church, there should be a certain shared tenderness. Tenderness is it's the opposite of roughness. The word Peter uses does not describe a physical touch, but an emotional one. Something that comes from deep down. It, it's heartfelt. We know what it means to be kind, and we've all known people that manifest a remarkable degree of kindness. When we recognize someone as as being kind, we recognize a tender heart, not a hardened, mean, or thoughtless heart. Ephesians 4 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Be kind, forgiving, gentle, not harsh with one another. Next, all of you have a, a humble mind or be humble in spirit. Again, it's not just that we are to act the role of servant, but that inside, with all authenticity, we're to have a lowly spirit. We feel that we are utterly dependent on God for life and breath and intelligence and emotional stability and faith and safety and the use of our senses. And we feel utterly, utterly fragile and vulnerable in ourselves. On top of that, we feel sinful and unworthy as we look at ourselves apart from the free grace of God. And this grace makes us awestruck that we are loved, not pushy and self-assertive. A humble mind or spirit is not shame that says, I am a failure. It is recognition that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It takes humility to submit to God's sovereignty, to submit to God's control. Humility gladly submits to God and freely worships him. It has been said that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. You prefer others and you're quick to want to serve others. Well, then Peter changes from the positive to the negative. First telling us what we should be doing, then telling us what we should not be doing in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. This should bring to mind verse 23 of chapter 2, where Peter says, talking about Jesus... When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Verse 9 deals more with relationships that we have with those outside of the church. Although the fact that the church is full of sinners makes this verse applicable to Christian relationships as well. So it's both. In imitation of the Lord who bought us with his own blood, we must not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Rather, we are to bless. We are to bless our enemies. It is our confidence in God's perfect judgment that that enables us to bless our enemies. Because of our sin, our personal attempt to repay every injustice might lead us into more evil. However, because we know that God will vindicate us on the last day, we don't have to we don't have to be concerned with paying back all the evil that we have ever experienced. On the contrary, bless. We can bless when our confidence is in God and in his sovereignty. John Calvin says that though it is quite difficult to bless our enemies, we ought to imitate in this case our heavenly father who makes his son to rise on the unworthy. Even our Lord pours many earthly blessings on those who would rise up against him. Go before the Lord in prayer and ask him to enable you to seek the well-being of people you don't like. On the contrary, bless. Now, loving our enemies and calling for sin to be punished are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes blessing our enemies means that we seek justice. Legal prosecution can prevent an enemy from sinning further and may even drive them to repentance. But our default position is to bless. And we seek wisdom from God as to what that means and looks like in each situation. Now Peter quotes Psalm 34 for verses 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, Peter is quoting Psalm 34 here. And this is not the first time that Peter has quoted this psalm in this letter. He did it previously in chapter 2 and verse 3 where it says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this is taken from Psalm 34, 8. Some have said that Psalm 34 may have been a catechism in the early church or a popular hymn. Peter has just given us principles on how we are to relate to one another in the church. We are told to be of one mind and to have a compassionate heart. We are to love with a tender heart, to be courteous, not returning evil for even evil or reviling for reviling. Now, he reaches the conclusion of this matter with a citation from the Psalms that begins, For whoever desires to love life and see good days. So the Bible teaches that we are not to cling to the things of this world, but to set our hope on eternity. We're to look beyond the borders of the world and into the heavenly inheritance that he has preserved for us. 
At the same time, we are not to despise the life that we have in this world. When Paul was torn between two paths, to depart and be with the Lord or to remain on earth and minister, he wrote, I am hard-pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to remain in the flesh, is more needful for you. The tension with which Paul wrestled was not a tug between good and bad. It was between good and better. He was not contrasting that which is far better with that which is bad. We're to love life. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. We would think it unnecessary to have to tell people that they ought to love life because by nature, we do everything we can to preserve our existence. There are those people who have this ongoing love of life. Their excitement and optimism about each day are contagious because they communicate a passion for living life to the fullest. This is what we're supposed to be as Christians. We have a tendency to define our pilgrimage in this world in terms of good days and bad days. I had a a good day at the office Or me, you know, I had a bad hair day. But we should enjoy a multitude of good days. Because we are in touch with the author of good days. He is the giver of life, the giver of each day. Many of you know that a few years ago, our daughter Rebecca was diagnosed with MS. The doctors recommended a a medication that would, Lord willing, keep the flare-ups of the MS from happening. It's a medication that when she first started to take it, she had to be monitored by a physician to make sure that her body reacted well to it. This medication basically suppresses her immune system. The day that she started on the medication was literally the same day that the world was shutting down because of COVID. Now, we didn't know a lot about COVID at the time. All we knew was what we saw in the news, that apparently it was bad. People were getting really sick and some were dying. And now our daughter is on a medication that suppresses her immune system. I confess that we were scared. Now, sometimes... As a parent, we don't always make rational decisions. Our focus was on protecting our daughter. How do we protect her? Our temptation was to give in to fear and keep her isolated. And it was Rebecca who one day made the comment, I'm taking this, this medication that I might live. But to isolate myself from the world and from relationships, well, this isn't living. And she was right. In the name of perceived safety, we were giving up living life. We are to live life. And this verse is saying that for those who desire to to love life and see good days, do these things. 
Peter says that whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This appears in the form of two similar or almost identical statements. There is no basic difference between refraining a tongue from speaking evil and refraining lips from speaking deceit. In our noon men's group, we're going through a book based on the book of James and talking about taming the tongue. And Peter is saying similar here in this letter. Peter says not just to keep your tongue from evil. Don't just turn away from evil, but do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This does not mean simply that we are to be peaceful. We are to look for peace. Seek peace, which is not a casual undertaking. It is a search marked by passion. Such seeking should come from a heart on fire to reach peace. Seeking after peace involves a pursuit. In the book of Matthew, we see the words of Christ as it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The peace we are to seek is the peace of Christ, the peace of God. Lastly, we see in our text, verse 12, which says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This says that the eyes of the Lord are watching his people. His eye is upon us. Not a, not a disapproving eye, but a tender one. This is not the stare that destroys, but the gaze that lifts up. He keeps an eye on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. We are to be people who love life and see good days. We have to, to watch our mouths and turn away from evil. We have to seek peace and pursue it, knowing that God is eager to hear the righteous person and pour his blessings upon his people. These are the practical things that Peter sets before the church in the first century. A church in the midst of suffering, but that also had an unquenchable taste for the glory of God. Love life. We can have this weird struggle as Christians. As though we think that to enjoy the things of this world is somehow to encourage evil. No. We can love the things of this world because they point to God. We don't have to hate the created things in order to love the creator. Our enjoyment of the created things should point us to the creator. It's okay to love the gifts of God. It's okay to enjoy his blessings. We are to be people who desire unity of mind within the church. We are to have sympathy, love, compassion, a tender heart. We are to be kind-hearted. We are not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, we are to bless I would call these things essentials 
of the Christian life or essentials for Christian living. Not just optional extras, but essentials. This is what we should look like. So we don't get to say, you know, I'm just not all that sympathetic. I'm not that tender-hearted. So I guess, I guess I just don't have that one. No. This is what we should look like. This is what being called, what being the called out ones looks like. If we don't have these, if we're weak in these, we should work on them. We should work on this. We are to work out our salvation. Not that we might boast in ourselves as if to say, look at me. But we boast in God as to say, look, look what he has done. Look what he has done in my heart. There can be people that we don't have much in common with. And according to to studies or according to the media, the world would say that we shouldn't care about one another. But instead, we love. We love each other. That points to Jesus. Look what Jesus has done in my heart to cause me to love you, to care about you. To not be in my own little world caring only about myself. That's what God has done in my heart. That's the work of Jesus in my life. We can work on this because this is what we are to look like. We desire to love life and to see good days. This is what we do, not because of us, not on our own strength, but because of God and the work that he has done in us and through us. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. Just like when we read, be holy as my father in heaven is holy. And we can say, I can't be holy, but Jesus, but because of Jesus, I am holy. We see this list and we can think, I can't do that. Not on my own, but Jesus. Because of Jesus, that is already in me. And through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, I will grow in this. When we behave in a manner described in this passage, we are strengthened to stand firm in the faith. We seek unity within the church. We find encouragement from many other believers. This does not mean that we seek unity at all costs, but it does mean that we divide only over matters essential to the gospel. Likewise, as we treat others with humble love and sympathy, we point our brothers and sisters toward Christ who does the same. How do we commend the gospel? We live lives that are a demonstration of God's work in our hearts day in and day out. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So we work to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, we bless. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that your word is there for us to to search, 
and to consider, to study. We come before you and we are thankful for, your, for the grace that you have shown us. We are thankful for salvation. We are thankful for the forgiveness of sins. Father, we ask that you would help us to grow in unity, in sympathy, in love, to be more tender-hearted, to be more humble, that we might be a blessing to one another and those around us. We want these things to become increasingly true of us, Lord. Father, even in our pursuit of unity, we recognize that we may even be tempted to boast in that. We may be tempted towards spiritual pride. So, Lord, please guard our hearts in that area as well. Remind us daily of the truths of the gospel and our need of it. In Christ we pray. Amen.